Good evening, everyone. Great to see you. My name's John. I want to extend a really warm welcome to you, especially if it's your first time with us. So I'm going to try and ask a little question to, to wake you up, get your minds whirring a little bit. Um, and so I thought I'd go for a little light icebreaker, nothing too heavy. So the question is this. Who is the person that you dislike the most? Who is the person that you dislike the most? Now I want you to turn to the person next to you and tell them your answer. I'm just kidding, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry, you don't have to, you don't, you don't have to do that, it's okay, it's okay, June's happy to do it, June's going for it, she, she, she ain't holding back, she's got a list, it's alright, I'm third on the list, alright, that's not too bad, it's alright, it could get a bit awkward, especially if your answer was the person sat next to you, so we won't, we won't spend too long on that one, but today we're going to be looking at the most influential person in history, the most significant person to ever walk the face of the planet. Someone who more books have been written about and more songs, songs have been sung. And today we're going to be looking at one of Jesus' most controversial moments. And we're going through one of the accounts of his life written by his contemporaries and exploring who Jesus really is. And today's message is going to be a little bit uncomfortable. In fact, there's probably parts of it that most of you won't enjoy. And today we're going to be looking at the offensively inclusive Jesus. The offensively inclusive Jesus. So to get your minds into the story that we're going to be looking at today, I want you to just imagine something with me for a second. So imagine that since you're a little kid, you've always wanted to have your own toy shop. To run your own toy shop. Now, I'm not talking about one of those chain ones like Toys R Us, rest in peace. I'm talking about real, legit. Like, have you ever been to one of those cool towns, I don't know, an Isle of Wight or something? Not that I've ever been there. But somewhere that has these, like, traditional toy shops that you go in and it's just magical. And it doesn't matter how old you get when you walk around. You're just like, ah, this is so cool. And you feel like a kid again. One of those sorts of toy shops. Now, the problem is... The challenge of, of reaching your dream is that you're broke. You haven't got any money. So when you leave home, you start doing jobs you hate and stop spending money on the things you love. Because you want to save every penny to finally get this toy shop. And finally, after years and years of working, you gather up enough money to finally be able to buy your very own toy shop. And you get it ready and you're kind of painstakingly looking at the window display and oh, maybe if I just move this bit and put that little thing in there and, uh, and just what music should I play inside? And you're thinking through all the details and you get it just how you want it. And opening day comes and you're with your family and friends and it's this just special moment. And then the days pass and customers start rolling in and you are loving life. Like you love it. This is your dream come true. And after about two or three weeks, someone walks in through the front door who you recognize but haven't seen for years. And it's one of your old schoolmates. I mean, you didn't know him massively well, but you know who he is. It's Levi. And Levi walks into your shop and he walks up to the cash desk and you say, hey, is it, is it Levi? And he doesn't particularly respond very warmly. In fact, he says, yeah, it is. And there's something you need to know, which is... To have a shop in this area, it kind of costs you a little bit. Like if you want to have a shop on this street, you're going to have to pay a bit of respect. Like that's how things work around here. I don't know if you're aware. And you're like, 
Sorry, why well, I, I do things above board, I'm not, I'm just, I'm, I'm a legit guy, I'm paying my taxes, like I'm not getting involved in this. And so Levi says, okay, have it your way. And then he leaves and you, you close up shop and you head home that night and you're lying in bed thinking, what was that all about? Like, that was a bit weird. And you wake up the next morning, you start walking to work. And then in the distance, you see a crowd gathering and you, you notice it's outside your toy shop. So you start kind of picking up the pace and then you start running towards your shop. And, you, and as you approach, you realize that people are, are kind of staring in and there's a bit of shock and a bit of anxiety. And you get closer and you realize that the entire front of your shop has been smashed up. There's broken glass and, and bits of toys all over the floor. As you climb over the pits of all your broken dreams on the floor and you get inside, inside your shop, everything is just smashed up. There's spray paint and the cash register has been completely robbed and you've been left penniless with your dream in tatters. And as you start sweeping up the bits of glass and toys into your dustpan and brush that afternoon, you feel a on your shoulder. And as you look up from your knees, you notice... Levi, and he says to you, next time it won't be the toys that I break. And you think, this this can't happen. So you you call up the police and say, hey, look, here's what's gone on. And they're not interested. And you soon discover that they're in on the job too. They're getting their little cut. And so you feel helpless. What are you going to do? I mean, if you want this shop to continue, you're going to have to pay up. And you feel completely frustrated and fearful, but you're in a corner. And then the months pass and you keep paying off this fee and keep paying it off. And you're struggling to make ends meet, living in fear. When one day you hear this amazing news that there's this man who's been going around the local towns and villages who's been offering hope to people. And he's, he's, the, the rumor is that he's a savior, that he's going to save the towns and the villages in the area from the corruption that's come. And you get all excited. You think, I hope he comes to our town. And sure enough, the day comes where Jesus comes to your town. And you're looking out the window of your shop, and there you see him, and you rush outside to join the crowds as you walk along the high street with all the masses with Jesus at the front. And out of the corner of your eye, you notice someone coming out of a news agent's, and it's Levi, and he's counting some freshly collected cash looking pretty smug. And then to your delight, Jesus notices him, and you're like, here's the moment I've been waiting for. And Jesus, to your delight, says, come over here, Levi, and this is the moment you've been praying for. Oh, yes, Jesus is going to sort this man out. I mean, I don't know much about him, but he's got a group of 12 guys behind him, so I'm guessing he's going to rough them up. I don't know if he's going to sort them out. I mean, I don't want to be too bad, but enough that he won't forget about it. And so Levi's beckoned over by Jesus. And to your amazement, Jesus says to him, is it Levi, right? Cool, yeah, yeah, I've been, been looking for you. Do you know what, I, I was just going to ask, would you be up for joining us? In fact, there's a spot on my core team that I was going to ask you if you wanted to join. And actually, I, I don't have any plans for dinner tonight because I, I wanted to actually see if you are free for me to come to your place. Is that all right? Can we have dinner tonight? 
Now, how would you, as the shopkeeper, feel in that moment? Honestly, I don't want the Christian answer. I want the honest answer. How would you feel in that moment? Now, hold on to that feeling as we read Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17, because it's almost an identical sort of situation. So we're going to be continuing in the Gospel of Mark chapter 2, verses 13 to 17. So it says, Jesus went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, the religious leaders, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now you can miss just how crazy and controversial what Jesus, that, that, what Jesus has just done in that passage if you don't understand the culture of the time. So what you need to know is that tax collectors were despised. Notice how in the verses we just read, that almost in a synonymous way, they say things like tax collectors and sinners. It's like they're interchangeable things. Like, think of the, the worst person you can think of. I mean, we've just been looking at the horrors of trafficking. Think of the person who you think, wow, they are scum of the earth. That is what tax collectors were in the day. They were traitors and thieves. They worked with the Roman oppressors. Now, Rome had invaded Israel, were controlling it, and you would have to pay a cut of your money to the people who were oppressing you. And not only that, the tax collectors would take that money and then say, hey, I want a little bit of extra on top for my own back pocket. And if you didn't like it, you had no choice but to pay. Full of corruption. Now, that's hard for us to get our heads around. If you've lived in the West your whole life, the concept of corruption isn't really something that we fully grasp. See, for us, the profession that we hate the most is what? Traffic wardens. We hate traffic wardens with their high-vis jackets, kind of smugly walking around with that device, whatever it is in their hand, with a back pocket full of yellow stickers they love to slap on your wing mirror when you're two minutes past the special time you're not supposed to be there. To us, that's like the worst of the worst, the traffic warden. The people who give you a fine because you've done something wrong. And in our country, we have it so easy that if you pay it off soon enough, you get your fine half price. We have no idea about corruption here. Corruption would be is if you woke up tomorrow morning and went out to your car on your driveway and it had a fine on the wing mirror, on the windscreen. That is corruption. And then you call up the police, you're like, wait, my car was in my driveway and I've got a parking ticket. Like, what is that all about? And then the police not interested because they're getting paid off too. 
That is corruption, which some of you, if you've grown up in other contexts and cultures, you'll get just how frustrating and helpless that situation is. Now, not only was there corruption, there was this whole concept of betrayal that people felt towards tax collectors. Again, we've never, in the West here, in the UK, lived under an oppressor. So imagine if the Nazis had won World War II, and they'd taken over, and they were running things, and you were having to pay off a large chunk of your money, not to, you know, the NHS or whatever, but to the Nazis back in Germany. And your neighbour, as soon as the invasion started, runs snivelling off to be like, oh, let me help you, let me help you. Let me get on the uniform. Oh, this feels good. How do you think you would feel about that person? Again, I want the honest answer, not the Christian one. How would you feel about that person? And notice in verse 13 where they were when this happened. It says, they went out again beside the sea, the Sea of Galilee in Israel. Now track back to the chapter we read last week and the week before. Who has Jesus just called to be his disciples? Fishermen. So they're going to know exactly all about this guy. In fact, it's very likely that Levi would have taxed them. How do you think Peter felt about Levi? When Jesus said, hey, let's go for dinner at his house. So why would Jesus do that? If you know anything about how to establish a public platform, you know that what Jesus did is public suicide. If we've learned anything, if you watch the news like me, you will know how to make your platform completely flop. We're seeing it day after day. All you need to have done now is be photographed with someone controversial 20 years ago and you're in all sorts of water. So why would Jesus at the start of his ministry choose to associate with the most despised person in all of the culture? Why? It was a leadership disaster on paper. So why did he do it? Jesus did it because he wanted to show Peter and he wanted to show the crowds and he wanted to show the countless people who'd read the story after it happened and he wanted to show us the truth that no one is too bad to be a follower of Jesus. No one, no one is too far gone to be welcomed into Jesus' family. That's the message of this story. And it's not like Jesus just did this once. And he kind of, you know, had a bit of a, a hiccup, a slip up in the, the disciples had a bit of an emergency PR meeting. Like, all right, Jesus, like you were tired, you made a mistake, but going forward, we're going to brand manage you a little bit more because we can't have that again. No, Jesus did these sorts of things over and over and over again. Let's go through some of the names. Mary Magdalene. What was she famous for? Being possessed by demons. Now, I don't know what your rep is if you think, oh, I think people view me as this sort of person or that sort of person. But I'm guessing it probably wasn't great to be known as demon woman. Like, that was her backstory. And yet Jesus said, hey, not only can I sort you out and heal you up, you can be part of my closest friends. What about lepers? Jane spoke about this last week. Now, leprosy is a 
a horrible degenerative disease. If you've ever seen it, to, to look at it is it's so difficult. It's such a, a horrible thing that someone experiences. But far worse in this time than the physical ailment was the social rejection. You are unclean, unworthy of love and community, banished to the outskirts of society. And touching someone with leprosy, wow. Not only are you risking your own health, but you have just become spiritually unclean. And yet when the lepers come to Jesus, he says, hey, I'm going to put my arm around you. I'm going to welcome you in. You're no longer rejected, but you're on the in, the inside of my family. What about common fishermen? See, when you, you look at the cabinets that our politicians put together in the, the core teams of the large uh, organizations in our society, I'm pretty sure that working class fishermen aren't on the top of your agenda. You're going to be looking for the best and the brightest. You want Oxford and Cambridge graduates and people who've got big salaries and big homes and impressive wardrobes, impressive cars. You're not going to be thinking, let's get some salt of the fishermen onto your core team. What about the woman at the well? A woman who had been married five times. Now get your head around that. In our culture, being married five times, that is, you can imagine the type of things people think about her. Imagine it, her in that culture, scandalous. Not just married five times, but a current man, not a husband. Scandal. And yet when she encounters Jesus, not only does he not condemn her, but he says, you know what? You're the perfect candidate. The perfect candidate to be my first missionary. And that woman becomes the first ever Christian missionary, is sent back to her village and used to transform that whole place and tell them all about Jesus. Scandal. And I think one of the reasons we, we lose, we don't kind of pick up on this is, sadly, throughout history, Christians have stopped looking like they're Christ. And sadly, we've become more known for avoiding people than inviting them in. It's true, isn't it? It's sad, but that's the reality. But Jesus couldn't be further from that. In fact, he was so, so used to hanging out with people that society had rejected that he earned himself this reputation we read in Matthew 11. He was known as a glutton, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. That was how Jesus was known. And another important thing to pick up from this story is that Levi had another name. He was also known as Matthew. And that might be a bit more familiar to some of you who have read the Bible. Now, Matthew was used to write one of the gospel accounts, one of the four gospel accounts of Jesus' life. Now, why is that so significant? Because I think for many of us, we know the theology and theory that no one is too bad and Jesus can forgive anyone. But I think for, for many of us here, even though we know the forgiveness of God, there's an element of shame from our past that, if we're being honest, makes us feel that we can never be used by Jesus. Because of things that I've done, you think, well, yeah, I, I know I can be forgiven. I know I can get to heaven. But, I mean, how can I be a mentor to someone? How could I be a leader? I mean, 
people might, if they found out, if they knew what I'd done, how could Jesus ever use me? And Jesus is desperate through this story to show you that no one has done anything so bad that he will ever reject you. He says, look, here is the worst of the worst. And I used him to be one of my 12 disciples to write the first book of the New Testament to change countless lives. If I can use him, do not discount yourself. There's people who are, the reality is there's people in the room who, there's things in your life that you have never told anyone or maybe just a tiny handful and you, you are living with the shame of that. And tonight Jesus would compassionately come to you and say, not only do I want to forgive you, not only do I want to give you freedom, but I have a plan and a purpose for your life. I have a purpose for life. One of significance. You don't have to have a, a back row mentality, a kind of getting into heaven by the skin of your teeth. You don't need to carry that shame. Jesus wants to forgive you and free you and say that you have a plan. He has a plan and a purpose for your life. No one is too bad for Jesus. And it needs to be said, no one is too bad for his family. No one is too bad to be welcomed into our church family. If you come in here tonight and you're like, man, everyone seems to have their life sorted and I, I feel like I'm the messed up one and if people knew about me, whew, they wouldn't want me coming back. No, no, no. No one is too bad for Jesus' family. So first of all, no one is too bad for Jesus. And secondly, and this one's a bit uncomfortable, no one is too good for Jesus. See, the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders at the time, they love to make two categories. There was the good people, who they were obviously a part of, and the bad people, the sinners. And so that's why we see things like the story in John chapter 8 of the woman caught in adultery. So the Pharisees had this golden moment where they somehow managed to catch this woman in the act of sleeping with another man other than her husband. And they're like, yes, here's our moment. We can drag her to Jesus. And they, they drag her kicking and screaming to Jesus and say, here is a woman we caught in the act. You know in the law it says that she deserves to die. What are you going to do? They love this moment because it makes them feel so much better about themselves. Sinful woman, good man. Wow, I feel great. And we look at that situation, we think, man, they were terrible. How could they do that? Yeah, I want to ask, slightly provocatively, how different are we? When we look at our hearts, how different are we? When we look at our culture, how different are we? See, in Jesus' time when a woman was caught in adultery, they'd all shout, look at this terrible person. And in our culture, when someone's caught in adultery, say one of the celebrities in Strictly Come Dancing, we say, look at this terrible person. Our newspapers, every day of last week, covered with a face. Look at him. Terrible person. Man, I feel better about myself that I'm not him. Why is Jeremy Kyle such a... It's been going for years. Why is it so popular? 
because we love watching people whose lives are in a mess. Why? Because I feel so much better about myself. Are we that different? I'd suggest we're not. Throughout history, we've always loved public torture and execution. It used to be that they'd throw stones and crucify people. Then we got a bit more civilized and threw tomatoes and hung people. And now, yeah, okay, we're maybe not that brutal, but we throw tweets and destroy reputations, rip people to shreds publicly. And we can say, oh, it's the media. (laughs) Well, who's funding that? We fund it with every click and comment because we love it. We love to divide people into good and bad. Every sphere of life, politics, politics. My party that I vote for, we are the ones who are moral. We care about the issues. Man, people who vote for that party, wow, they are bad people. They are terrible. In America in the last 18 years, hatred for people of the opposing party has gone from 20% to 50%. 50% of voters in America would say that they hate people who vote for the opposing party. Now, we can say, oh, those crazy Americans, like, oh, man, like, they are messed up over there. I'm half American. I I kind of get a bit of an insight into it when I go over. Yeah, again, I'd want to push back and say, has Brexit shown that we're maybe not all that different? I had three friends visiting yesterday um, from Moldova and uh, thought I'd take on a nice casual walk around central London. I had no idea there'd be 700,000 protesters walking through Trafalgar Square. (laughs) Oh, man. And if you had any question about whether or not we have hatred towards people who think or vote differently to us, spend 10 minutes walking along that line. See, the message of the Pharisees was the belief that many of us have that there's some good and there's some bad. Yet Jesus' message was totally different. His message was there's not good and bad, but all are sinners. All are sinners. He says, if you look at a murderer... And you say, how on earth could someone do that? I mean, I just don't get how someone could be so twisted and messed up. Jesus says, well, wait, wait, wait. If you have hatred in your heart towards someone, then you're just the same as a murderer. Because the same root that leads to murder is living inside you. Jesus says, if you look at the person who's having an affair and you say, how despicable, how could they? And you have lust in your heart. You live a life of fantasizing, appalling, lusting after someone that's not yours. Then you're no different from the adulterer. Because the same root is inside you. We're in the same camp. It's why when the woman is caught in adultery, Jesus is like, all right, cool. If that's what you believe, let's play this one through then. So the woman lying bloody battered on the floor. He says, okay, cool, you, you guys are good. She's bad, great. So you have not sinned. 
You grab the first stone and you be the first to chuck it. Go on, go for it. Have at it. And one after another, they drop their stones because they start to see that it's not us in them, good and bad, that all have sinned. Let's go back to Mark 2.17. This is probably one of Jesus' most savage lines in all of his ministry. He says, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, at first glance, you might read that and be like, wait, isn't Jesus just confirming everything that the Pharisees believed? They believed that they were good, and Jesus is just saying, yeah, you're good, so I'll just leave you to it, but I'm here for the sick people. No, what he's saying is, all are ill, all are sick, all are in desperate need of a saviour. Yet if you're so good and righteous and blind in your mind that you can't see that you're ill, then you're the sickest of them all. And there's not a whole lot that anyone can do for you. Jesus said, at least the tax collectors and sinners have the sense to know that they're ill. But if you're so blind to your sickness, then you're in the worst place of all. True sickness is thinking you're good when you're really not. And that's my story. That's my story. I was a teacher's and parent's dream. I uh, behaved really well. I never had the sort of uh, backsliding time, you know, where you go drinking down the park and all that sort of stuff. I, I was very studious. I, I did well in my exams. And um, I, I got kind of those awards you get like, effort in year nine for science and all that sort of stuff, 100% attendance and those things at the time you think are really treasured and you put them in your little CV folder and think, oh, this will look great in my job application, I'm amazing and I had a collection of all of those sorts of things and um, I was head boy of the school and chairman of the youth council and student union president, all these different things and I was convinced I was an amazing person. I knew it, I knew I was a good person, Wow. And I would look at my friends and be like, what is wrong with you guys? Like, how do you keep doing these dumb things? Like, it's not that hard. And I remember, like, yeah, just hanging out with them and the things they do. And say, so I was just like, oh, man, you guys, like, so stupid. I, and then in God's, in God's kindness to me, he opened my eyes to the filthiness of my heart the sickness of my soul. My eyes were open to just how proud I was about how judgmental I was. Oh, so judgmental. How jealous I was. Oh, I used to compare myself so much to people all the time. When they got things I wanted, I'd always be like, yeah, but it's because of this. Or I can never celebrate with someone who got something I wanted. Such a hypocrite. So judgmental. Wow, was that painful. And it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Because when you become aware of just how much, <laughs> how dark your soul is, only then can you start receiving the help and healing that you need. And so I went from being this judgmental person to, I'd look at my friends, I'd look at people around me, I wouldn't think, wow, how could they? To, wow, I could definitely start doing that. But for the grace of God, but for God's grace, I'm no different for them. I'm 
desperately in need of God's, of God's grace and his help every day. And that's still the case. I can say, oh, I was like that and I'm now like that. I still need God every day. You might think, oh, yeah, I work for the church. You probably haven't sinned for like eight months now. And that is true. Like, I'm on a pretty good no sin streak at the moment. Trying to get to that 12 months without sinning. But, you know, we'll try. We'll keep going. But, nah, man, tomorrow could be a disaster but for the grace of God. I need him so desperately. Still need him day after day. I need that mercy which is new every morning. And when I now read these stories of the tax collector, I now look at that and say, wow, I am the tax collector. I am the thief. I am the one caught in adultery. My question to you is, when you read the story of Levi, or the woman caught in adultery, or the celebrity caught kissing his dance partner, do you say, wow, terrible person? Or do you say, hmm, me too? Because unless you see the darkness in your own heart, you'll never get well. So how do we get well? How do we solve the problem of our sin and shame? Well, what does the world offer us? Maybe we can go down that route. Well, the world offers us self-help. Completely hopeless self-help. Saying, you know what? All the wrong things you've done, all the wrong things you've said, all the wrong things you've thought, all the times that you should have done the right thing, but you kind of turned a blind eye and didn't. Don't be so hard on yourself. Hey, be kind to yourself. Nobody's perfect. Nobody's perfect. It doesn't really matter. And what's the problem with that? The problem is that our wrong deeds do matter immensely. We might not like to admit that, but it's true. It's not just other people's wrongs that matter. Ours do too. And deep down, I think we know that. I think we know that just saying it doesn't matter doesn't work. Now, it might make you feel better in the moment, thinking, oh, it's okay, yeah, yeah, it's okay. But it's kind of like taking a painkiller for a festering wound. It might take away some of the sting of it, but you've still got a sickness. You need someone who's going to clean and heal you. The diagnosis for our souls is that we're sick, and it's terminal. In Romans 6, it describes it this way. The wages of sin is death. It's saying we're guilty, and rightly so. So is that the end of the story? Do you say, well, we're screwed. Jesus is just going to kind of leave us in our mess and wag a finger at us. No, praise God. Jesus didn't just come to condemn. No, he didn't at all. He didn't come to say there's no hope. In John 3.17 we read, For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Now how did Jesus do that? How can he offer forgiveness? Because just saying, hey, it doesn't matter, it doesn't work. You can't just brush it under the carpet. There needs to be justice. How was justice possible? Because Jesus took the weight of our sin on his shoulders. He became the tax collector. 
He became the person caught in adultery. He took on my pride and my shame and my lust and my anger and my judgmentalism and every sin I have ever committed or will ever commit and every sin you have ever committed or will ever commit. He took that sin on him, paying the debt that you deserve to pay and he cancelled it once and for all. You can now be forgiven and free because of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Not because you are good enough to earn it. In fact, quite the opposite. You bring your guilt and your shame and your sin and your mess and he cleans you up and heals you up and forgives you and frees you and says, I give you a plan and a purpose. And not only that, I'm going to give you joy and peace forevermore. That is the gift of Jesus. In Isaiah 53, it describes it like this. Beautiful verses. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. That's our Jesus. That's our beautiful Jesus. He didn't come to say it doesn't matter. He came to say it does matter. And I'm going to pay the price that you deserve to pay. For the wages of sin is death. But that verse doesn't end there. It says, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. All can receive that forgiveness. All who come to him can know the forgiveness of Jesus. That's the offensively inclusive message of Jesus. He won't turn anyone away. No one away. Yet before we finish, there's one thing that we need to make clear. The message of Jesus is also offensively exclusive. See, when he goes to Matthew, notice what he says to Levi. He says, follow me. He doesn't say, hey, I'm all about the tolerance. Like, I'm not going to judge your lifestyle you live your best life. I'm not here to judge you. Like, you do you. I'm going to do me. You go for it. Okay, cool. Go for it. All, all's good. No, no, no. He says, follow me. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's Jesus' statement. See, I think for some of us, it's this whole thing of, well, I like what Jesus teaches. And I'm up for that maybe on a Sunday evening. But I kind of like, I'm, I'm into this Buddhist meditation thing a little bit. And there's certain parts of the Bible where I've read that. I'll, let's just kind of get a permanent marker and, and just cross through that bit. Because I, I don't really like that thing that Jesus did. But the general love thing, I'm all in Jesus. Let's, let's go with that. Great. But I'm going to kind of hedge my bets a bit and I take a little bit from here and a little bit from there. And hmm, if you knew my workplace, being a Christian in my workplace, like, hmm, no. So, but Sunday, I'm all yours, Jesus. Now, Jesus says there's one way and it's an all or nothing deal. It's not a 50-50. It's I'm either all in or not. When Jesus called Levi, he would have had the same response that Another tax collector who Jesus called would have had. Zacchaeus, we read about in the Gospel of Luke. Zacchaeus, again, corrupt tax collector. Jesus calls him to him. 
He's challenged. He's like, I've got to be all in with this. I've got to leave my old life behind. So he gives away half of his possessions to the poor. He repays everything he's stolen. And on top of that, he's like, you know what? I'll pay you back four times what I've stolen to those I've wronged. Because following Jesus is saying, I'm all in. You give something, you give up everything for something far greater. It's not just like, oh, I sacrifice and then life is rubbish. No, no, no. What Jesus offers is far greater than any sacrifice you will ever make. Jesus' command is, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Everything. Your money, your sex life, your career, your relationships, your decisions. All or nothing. He says, everyone's welcome. Oh, so inclusive. It requires everything. And there's one way. Wow, that's exclusive. But Jesus says, come to me. All who come to him will never regret the decision. If you choose today to say, I want to be all in for Jesus, I guarantee you that on your deathbed you won't be thinking, wow, I wish I'd had this or that. No, no, no. As you stand and see him face to face, you won't be thinking, hmm, I wish I'd held on to that kind of little dodgy business I had on the side or kept kind of sleeping with that person who I knew I shouldn't have or uh, hadn't uh, really committed to church a whole lot. No, no, no. When you see him face to face, any sacrifice, anything you gave up in pursuit of him will grow strangely dim. As you step into his beautiful eyes. I love that hymn. The things of earth will go strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. You can live for now. You can live for the next 70 years. Or you can live for the beauty of eternity. That's the choice that we have today. It's the invitation of Jesus. And my question is this. What's your next step? What's your next step? Because Jesus' invitation wasn't just to Levi... His invitation is to you. It's to you. Every person in this room, Jesus is saying, follow me. And for some tonight, following Jesus means taking that first step. You've been kind of considering it maybe throughout tonight or for a few weeks. And there comes a moment you have to say, I want to start this journey of walking with Jesus. And you can make that decision today. The best decision you'll ever make to say, I want to follow Jesus. For others, it's taking the next step of saying, I want to be all in. I want to be all in. If you're being honest with yourself, your walk with Jesus has kind of been a bit like, well, at some points I'm walking one way and other points I'm walking the other way and... I give, I've give Jesus my Sunday evenings and I may be chucking some money into the offering when I can now and again or uh, I'll come to the odd event or, uh, but Monday to Friday, let's say Monday to Saturday, that's, that's more me. Jesus, you have it all. But I kind of would really like to kind of control my own sex life. Jesus, you can have it all but just not that bit. And tonight, Jesus' invitation to you is, are you all in? Are you all in? And the beauty of Jesus is that you come, if you come to him, recognizing that, yeah, I've messed up. He's standing there waiting for you, 
Not with a wagging finger like, okay, let's go through everything you did wrong. No, no, no. He's standing there with his arms open, waiting to embrace you. He's not going to drudge through all the mess and mistakes you've made. He's not going to try and pile on shame. He's going to say, you are forgiven, you are free, and now it's time to talk about how I'm going to use you and heal you, and you're going to have a massive impact in my name. That's how he's going to respond to you. There's no shame. There's no guilt. And that's the final point. I just, I really feel like there's some people here tonight who, for you, that's your story, that you know the theory, the theology. Maybe you've even read this story before. But you're held back by shame. And you're like, because of that thing, I can never really be used by God. And Jesus would want to say to you, no one is too bad for me. His arms are open to you tonight. He wants to embrace you, heal you. He wants you to know the lightness of forgiveness and the joy of having a plan and a purpose for your life.